0: Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially, one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host Will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. For the first episode of The Pursuit of Learning, I'm excited to be talking with Peter Beresford, a man I'm proud to call my friend. Peter is a teacher, a creator, and the author of The Trump Guide to Spirituality. In this wide ranging conversation, Peter and I talk about religion, spirituality, meditation, creativity, social media, and Peter's latest book. We also talk about some of Peter's adventures and much, much more. I had an absolute blast and learned a lot. I hope you do too. Enjoy the show. Peter Beresford, Welcome to the very first episode of The Pursuit of Learning. Clint Murphy, good to be here. I'm really excited about your
1: first episode here, brother.
0: Thank you, brother. I want to start us off with a very easy question for you, I hope. What is something in life that you are very excited about right now? Oh, that's a really cool
1: way to start a conversation. Clean the slate here on a really positive uh, note. Something I'm really excited about right now. There's so many things right now. They are creative in nature and they are a combination of personal creative projects like new book ideas that are so ridiculous. And I'm just market testing them, you could say. And the other thing is I'm applying for a grant at the school I teach at BCIT and I am trying to uh, apply the best of my creativity to this educational technology project that I hope will serve as real innovation to the people who see it at BCIT. So those things are getting the bulk of my attention. I'm really excited about those. My teaching schedule has been reduced drastically now due to COVID, so I've got a lot of space in my days to consider other projects, which is actually what I've been asking for for three years, was the chance to teach a little less and work on other projects a little more. And so here it is in one form or another. And yeah, I'd say those two things and my relationship with my girlfriend, Toy, Toyoko, is also a really bright, exciting part of my life right now.
0: Excellent. We're going to dive pretty deep into the idea of creativity throughout this conversation. One of the things that you mentioned to me, and I should give an early warning, the conversation's not going to be chronological. We'll jump back and forth in time across multiple subject domains, and I'm Definitely sure, given it's you and me, that we'll have some digressions here and there. But ultimately, we will get to some pretty good nuggets for our listeners. Very cool. One of the things you told me, Peter, was that you went to Catholic school throughout your childhood and were a practicing Catholic until your early 20s. And that you then stepped away, partially through Buddhism And so I want to explore what was that Catholicism like for you and why the Buddhism and the step away?
1: Yeah, that's a very important foundational question here about, you know, how did being a Catholic kid for 12 years of schooling, and I I was Catholic practicing until I was 20 years old. Um, How did that affect me? It's, It's so, so foundational. And being a Catholic kid, you learn in school that biblical history is no different than actual history so they don't tell you that there's any difference between the first world war and the time that like bread rained down from heaven right or moses parts the 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 red sea or jesus multiplies (laughs) the bread and and the fish like you you just think of it all as facts right so you you're indoctrinated and I, i don't mean that word in a negative way but you're like this is all you hear. And at age seven, you're given an examination of conscience, which is a list of like 45 possible sins you can commit. And you're told to review that and see like how many things did you do wrong. The idea being like, if you do too too many of these wrong, you're a bad person. <laughs> we'll burn in hell. And so this is in preparation for our first confession. So I think that does something of the wiring of a young kid. I think that's inescapable. I think there's a lot of pros and cons to it. So there's that element of it, the fear of God, but also hopefulness in bliss and paradise and prayer. And so you asked about the connection to Buddhism. That comes from years and hundreds, thousands of hours spent in prayer as a child from as soon as, you know, I was probably five, I learned to pray up until 20. So these are like talk, talking with your eyes closed, to something in the dark like you're you're in the dark and you're talking to something and that get that establishes a relationship with the dark like you you're you're talking to something right that you're acknowledging there's something other there otherworldly and you believe it and like you feel it and you go there when you're having hard times or good good times so that's the thread that continued. So when I got to be 18, you know, 20, and my critical faculty started kicking in a little more, started asking questions like, oh, Jesus, sir, he rose from the dead? Oh, wow, Like, and I say I believe that? Well, how do I know I believe it? What does that actually mean? Jesus was born of a virgin mother? Do I, and I believe that? Wow, like, what does it mean to say I believe that? And these two events are foundational to the entire Catholic faith. Literally, like the virgin birth and the resurrection are the two things that make him unlike any human. Like in, these are foundational. And I realized, I think I had uh, tried uh, mushrooms for the first time around like 19. And they, those sort of opened me up a little bit to other options. Um, I tried MDMA MBMA also at that age. And that opened me up to the concept that all religions are just ladders going to the same place. And that got really clear for me. I'm like, if you're Muslim, you're Hindu, you're Christian, you're Buddhist, you're Zoroastrian, whatever it may be, it's just it's so obvious. It became so obvious to me. So then I thought, I was in church one day reciting the Apostles' Creed, and I heard the words coming out of my mouth, I believe in Jesus, God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, Son seated at the right hand of the Father, all this. And I and I stopped and thought, what am, what am I even saying? I believe in this, and I haven't even read the Bible. That was a weird part. I had never even read the entire book that it was based on. So I walked out of church. I was alone there, actually. I walked out Sunday at 5 p.m. I'm like, you're not, you're not setting foot in this building again until you read the entire Bible. And I read it with a highlighter and a pencil. And I was like, what is this really all? And I got through the whole Old Testament and then two thirds of the New Testament. And I, realized that I didn't need to finish it. I, I I learned what I what I needed to learn
0: and
1: transferred over that prayer life into uh meditation.
0: So something you just said there really resonated. Each religion being a path to the same spot. One of the things I think you know I'm studying right now is mindfulness. And they often do talk about the fact that every religion that has prayer is in effect a form of mindfulness, whether you're meditating, whether you're praying to God, what you're doing is taking yourself away from the distractions and focusing your mind. You're bringing it here to the present moment, right here, right now. Is that somewhat what you're talking about there?
1: That's part of it. And I love that idea. So I think prayer and the word prayer gets a bad rap because it gets connected to traditional models of religions, right? hierarchical, patriarchal, whatever you want to say. But what's, what's lost is the, you know, the universal experience of prayer, which is exactly what you just said. It's a slowing down. It's being singular in focus. It's like doing something repetitively, possibly. Now that may be reciting... A prayer it could be in our father, right? It could be a, a, a mantra. It could be from any lineage. It could be spinning in circles. It could be watching the breath, right? But they all have this repetitive thing in nature. And, and if you're lucky, what you might get to is a slowing down of your brain waves, a slowing, a turning off of the, the default mode network, which is all the static and haywire that we're constantly thinking about well, turning that off. So there's similarities there. I think what prayer does. Also, more so than just mindfulness, is uh, ask and surrender to a power that is infinite, and you're know, very being very intentional about that. And so, I think that's a dynamic that may be, there may be an emotional quality to that in prayer that you might not automatically be in a mindfulness practice.
0: That makes sense. An interesting thing that I found out just in the last couple weeks talking to my oldest son. When he's stressed, he prays mm-hmm. and he never told his mother that he never told me that he's in Catholic school. He's mm-hmm. been learning it since he was a young kid, as you talked about. Mm-hmm. And we don't talk about it too much at home mm-hmm. to hear him say, dad, when I'm stressed, I pray and I feel less stressed. It was beautiful. It reminded me of mindfulness. It reminded me that he's actually learning to center himself and to put his trust and faith in God.
1: That's really, really beautiful and so wonderful to hear that. Hold this. This mm-hmm. is 12. No. This is your 12-year-old son. Okay. For someone who's 12 to learn the tool, the tool that like you can be the solution to your own problem. Like It's all in you. Right? That's so, so cool that, that you have that power and that you can ask for help. And, and oh, that's really beautiful.
0: So, one of the things you talked about a bit there was Buddhism as part of the mindfulness as one of the avenues. What drove you to that avenue? Why the move from Catholicism to Buddhism?
1: That's a really good question. I think that when I left a religion at 19 or 20, there was a void. And the void needed to be filled with something and that something needed to be of a spiritual realm, right? So I guess that the, the images that had been portrayed to me of Buddhism and meditation and yoga and Hinduism and possibly pop culture, right? Like in the, 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 the few years around then, like I guess that they offered an easy entrance point for me. Like, the sage in the mountain. Like you're, you're a 20 year old guy. You love the idea of this bearded guru in a, in a misty cave in the Himalayas. Like that, that's so perfectly captured what you want to experience. Like you want to break free of this. I, I hadn't really traveled to another continent before. I'd never been to Asia, never been to Europe. So I had these like extremely grandiose ideas. And so I think those images captured me and the, the, the one central thing to all those and the monks and the saffron robes and like was meditation, right? So there, there's a lot of visuals connected to it. And at the same time, like a very tactical thing you can do in your day to day. And, and then you don't have to pledge allegiance. You don't have to join an organization. You can do it in your backyard. <laughs> and so I, I think that they were just there. They were very accessible it sounded really interesting. I mean, the concept of, uh, personally, the concept of dreams and recording dreams, that had always been my dream as a kid, to like be able to record dreams. The idea of consciousness itself, I think I was just drawn to that naturally at 1920. So the books that I would read about consciousness would often link into meditation. And there was some little feedback loop between like, oh, you read about consciousness, it gets connected to some new age, new agey topics, maybe they loop in meditation. Oh, you know, I'd look at meditation and think, I can do that. And I actually, I think my first ever book on it was called Gaining Super Consciousness or something. It was like a hundred page book from the library and it had like a 10 minute meditation. I could do a five minute meditation, you know, inhale, exhale, count to six, count to six, like in the box. And it worked. And I think that's all I remember, like being 19 and realizing those two words, like,
0: oh, it worked. (laughs) So you've been meditating now for 23, 24 years. Yeah. Yeah. How often would you say you meditate? Um, Over the past two decades, it's changed
1: a lot. It's ebbed and flowed. There's been periods where I didn't meditate at all for months where I couldn't. I convinced myself that I couldn't. There's been times where it was eight minutes a day. There's been times where it was an hour a day, an hour and a half a day. There have been times where it was twice for 20 minutes each time. Um, The one thing I keep coming back to is that I need to do it. And so, you know, to get efficient about it and that the Tim Ferriss thing, you're like, what's the minimum effective dose. dose, right? So I tried to think about that and I actually got to the number of 12 minutes a day. But I think that takes a little bit of the romance and the mystery out of it. So, I, so whatever that number is, 12, I like to aim for more because that's where I'm allowing a little space and magic and it's like not so utilitarian. <laughs> so at least 12, it, ideally more. At, yeah, at least 12. So these days I'm, I'm aiming at 20 and I, like, I love the word daily-ish and that you reminded me of that. And so yeah, daily ish on a good week, it's seven and man, that feels great. But like on a, on a bad week, maybe it's three. But if I'm, if I'm really doing best for myself, it's always within 24 hours. You never let 24 longer than 24 hours pass without dipping in for at least like two minutes, five minutes. Cause that like it, it like frosts it up. It reminds you of, of that place.
0: Okay, we're coming back to this. I'm going to talk to the readers for a second about what we mean by, sorry, the listeners, what we mean by the concept of daily-ish. And you won't be surprised to know that I first heard it on Tim Ferriss when he was talking about meditation and mindfulness. And the idea with daily-ish is you're targeting daily, but you're not going to beat yourself up if you miss. Too often when people are trying to start a new habit or have a routine, They'll do it every day for twenty-five days, miss a day, and not do it again for two years. That is what dailyish tries to conquer. With dailyish, I'm going to set a goal of doing it every day. If I miss a day, I'll pick it up the next. So I'll try to never let that rut that can often extend for months or years happen.
1: I love that explanation of it because you're trying to be compassionate and kind to yourself.
0: A hundred percent.
1: And and I mean, to force something that's an act of you know, self care, like meditation, to force it when you don't have the time, you really don't want it, it just doesn't feel doesn't feel like it's coming from the right place. And I love that the forgiveness angle where you're you're going to allow for some flexibility as you learn a new habit and and also acknowledge that this is long game. Like this is the next 50 years of our life, knock on wood, like I hope we can both and all live well into our 80s, 90s and and beyond. So these habits need to be sustainable for over five decades, 50 years. So I love zooming out. One of my favorite catchphrases of my own is when in doubt, zoom out. So I've got 50 lines drawn on my cover, like tiny lines, and it's a reminder of like, oh, no, this is a 50-year game. And so whatever habits I'm trying to, that I believe in rather, then program them in over the long run and, and just be okay with that. Like there's no rush. There's no urgency. Similar to something like yoga for me or squats for me. Like, oh, I'll do it. The, the goal is once a week. Over the year, that's 50 times. Squats, 50 times. Yoga, 50. That's a lot over the year. Like over 10 years, that's 500 sessions. And like, so there's a long-term learning in the body and the mind. And I love
0: that angle. Yeah. It's a great way to look at it. Too often people get constrained by, what do I need to do right Right now?" now? A simple example, reading 52 books a year. Someone misses a book for two weeks and they think it's game over and they stop. No more reading for the rest of the year. They may not recognize that they were simply busy those two weeks. What about the week they're on vacation and they can read eight?
1: Yeah, exactly. What about the fact that maybe it was a dumb plan? And I don't even mean that, but, but we have to
0: allow that. Oh, our plans don't sometimes don't always match. Exactly. And if it's something that's important to you, don't just give up because you missed zoom out, take a long-term approach, slow it down.
1: That's exactly right. Because you're committing to the importance of this habit. You're not committing to the number. Because I think we could all agree that if something tragic happened in one's life, like there was a death of a family member, maybe you don't read a book for three months. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And if you're going to allow for that end of the spectrum, then it's like, it's a spectrum. You know, there's a lot of things could pop up that warrant not reading for a month. You know, this is so allowing for life, believing in the habits long term. And I think this is only like wisdom that
0: I've accepted in the past few years beautiful wisdom to accept. One of the things you said in there that I want to come back to because the listeners might've noted it. You said that you realize throughout the years of meditation that you need it. And what that brings up in me is what do you notice happening when you're not doing it that tells you that you need to do it?
1: Hmm. It's a really, really big question. It's a really important question. I've joked before that the only way I know to survive is meditation. That's a pretty big thing to say. So to answer your question, what is that thing, right? That how is, how is it put? Like, what am I turning off? It's, well, in a word, monkey mind, right? So this is a really common word to understand. There's no rhyme or reason to the cacophony of random thoughts that we could wake up with in like a highly like a media dense environment. There's just in all the relationships we're juggling, like there's literally no rhyme or reason to all of the space junk whizzing back and forth in our brains, just random neurons firing and connecting, right? And acknowledging how random that is, first of all, but the danger is when you hop on any one of those random thoughts and get emotionally involved in it, When do you hop off that random bus or train? It's like, I just thought of the analogy of a city with like thousands of buses going by that you could, you could literally hop on one at any time. And then how long are you going to ride that bus? And where's it going to end up? You could end up in a whole different city, right? They were emotionally charged stories, actually. So this is like, all these thoughts can be related to like emotional charges and, and that's that's a lot of work to do every day, and a lot of them aren't even real, like a lot of them are worries about things that may may not happen. We've all done that, <laughs> worried about something that didn't happen, and so it's like getting free of that
0: is very relaxing and just like after a workup. The monkey mind is legendary with everybody. One of the things that I want to know if you've ever heard from anyone ever is they have a monkey mind that's positive and affirming.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What a good question. Oh, that's so funny. Sounds like someone high on meth or something.
0: Yeah. And and all, all, all I'm saying there, Peter, is almost all of us that I've ever talked to, anything I've read the monkey mind tends not to be the nicest roommate.
1: Yeah, what's up with that?
0: Yeah, so they they call him the
1: monkey because he just pops up wherever he wants. And he's not nice. But why isn't he a super supportive, positive ant?
0: I think because then no one would meditate. <laughs> we would all like to talk to our friend. He'd come in, have a good chat. You'd have a tea with him, talk about some goths, and then go about life. I mean, is there
1: a chance that the person with that super positive monkey mind is like Richard Branson.
0: Someone who's achieving at an absolutely astounding level and always has a smile on their face? Yeah. Potentially, but if I'm not mistaken, I think he may actually meditate.
1: I think you're right. And I think he's a long-term 70s guru. He's an old school, like hippie level guy. Like he's got that thing. I get the point of your question and that I don't think there's such a thing.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's why we both think that meditation is so important to all aspects of your life. And as you were talking about, I started to picture a rabbit hole. And you know a lot of young people today, their rabbit hole is YouTube. And they start watching it, and the next show comes on, and the next show, and it auto-recommends. And when you're stuck in your own mind, you don't realize that exact same thing is happening inside your head. And how do you get out of that infinite loop? And I think meditation is what you're saying is your answer.
1: Yeah, and I love the idea of the YouTube video linking to another one, like when do you actually just walk away from the computer? I also love that idea of, of when you see someone quote unquote, crazy howling in the streets, or no, talking to themselves walking down the street, talking to themselves out loud. Society uses the word crazy to describe them, right? And But the only difference between them and the average person is, is that they're making sound with their mouth. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, is there's a lot of talking to ourselves that is just robbing us of so much. It's really immeasurable.
0: I had never pictured that. The only difference between that person and me, or someone else on that street is there vocalizing what's going through their mind yeah. while I'm having the exact same conversation in my mind yeah. and not vocalizing it that's right that's right and and so we learn
1: to like one is called crazy and one is called just a normal person so to some degree, like we're all containing a level of craziness, right? To the point that we can dampen that chatter internally. And when we
0: can dampen it, we can choose what to
1: put our attention on. And that's,
0: that's a beautiful thing. And we're going to dive into that right now. And I apologize in advance. This is the longest question I have for you. So bear with me for a minute as I get ready for it. So the question is, as we continue with Buddhism and mindfulness, which it seems have played a major role in your life and your creativity, for example. You have a Tumblr, a constant state of arrival, which has some of the best illustrations or depictions of mindfulness that I've seen. And you're, in your recent book, The Trump Guide to Spirituality, in your afterword, you tell the reader, please keep one idea in mind, equanimity which is a key virtue of Buddhism amongst other religions. Can we explore that together? To what extent has mindfulness and Buddhism impacted you from a creativity perspective?
1: To what extent has mindfulness and Buddhism impacted me from a creativity standpoint? I would love to know the answer to that. And I would love for the answer to be measurable and easy to explain, but I I don't, I can guess at it though, because it's a really lovely concept. And I think that there is definitely a link. And so what mindfulness does is, or or meditation practice does is asks me to linger in the space without deciding what's in the space. So linger in that space between thoughts. So there's a space there. That's the key point. Equanimity It's the middle path. It's the absence of desire and the absence of aversion. So you you don't seek and you don't avoid. So it's right there in the middle as a space. So there's a lot of similarities between those two things. If you're maintaining space. Now, how it links to creativity, I think, is when you allow space, then things can grow. and can take that space. So I like the analogy of soil. So if the soil is packed too tight, there's no air or water getting through it. Or no air, too, that things don't grow. if you like toil this, the so till the soil, give it air, give it some light, then things can grow. You know, so that's the function. I think that this, the link there. There's like I create space in on a regular basis through a meditation practice, and the result is there's space for cool things to grow in the garden, right? And and
0: so. For creativity to happen for me, the space needs to be there. So if the mind is cluttered, if it's full, if it's constantly spinning down that rabbit hole we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. you don't have the space to be creative. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I could liken it to a
1: spare room. You're trying to, let's say you're trying to build a nice bathroom in the spare room. And let's say the spare room was full of old random junk. <laughs> don't have room to design a nice, nice bathroom. You know? <laughs> and it's, it's just so, it, it's, it sounds so obvious, you know, when I, when I think about it like this, but it's really that it's so intangible, right? And, and the, com- making the commitment to it, to that slightly, the thing that I don't maybe feel like doing the meditation, that's the challenge. It's like the daily discipline. It's like taking your vitamins, you know, and and I'll sit down for 20 minutes and remind myself that this This isn't something I'm trying to fit in. This is the most important thing I can do in the day. Say that one one more time. Meditation isn't something I'm trying to fit in. It is literally the most important thing I can do
0: in my day. Excellent, thank you. I'm gonna throw a couple examples at you. Let me know if these resonate. Often when I'm meditating, I'll do my four thoughts that turn my mind to mindfulness. I'll do my uh, refuge prayers and loving kindness, and then I'll sit with the breath. And often, when I'm sitting with the breath, ideas for the Fante novel series that I'm writing with my sister start to come <laughs> to my mind. And I almost never bring them myself; they just start to come. The other time that happens. Nice, nice is often when I'm running. And so I'm out for a long run. I might be listening to a podcast or not. It's usually when not actually, because then I'm just in the moment, almost like a meditative run. Mm. And all of a sudden, the book comes into my mind and I write a chapter while I run. A couple times, I've paused the run I phone my sister and I tell her the chapter on the phone Mm -hmm. or I leave her a voicemail. Nice.
1: That's really important.
0: Outside of those two times where the ideas come very few times throughout my day or week or month, do I get ideas? It's so beautiful that you get them and
1: acting on them. Is the fuel that will, will incent them, incentivize the idea fairy to keep coming and landing and giving you the ideas. So she likes when you do something with them, right? It builds a, there's a feedback loop there. And so, uh, it's so wonderful that you have those spaces you can go to. And the cool thing is, it's like how few good ideas we really need to do something cool. You know, like we, you could have, more good ideas in a week you know if you like tried like if you like meditated more like drew more painted more like made a practice of it right but h- how much are you going to do with that <laughs> it's it's that i hear people complain a lot of oh i have so many ideas and like i'll go from this to this to this and it's true there's like people have so many genius shiny amazing ideas but you don't need a hundred you need
0: to do one You need that one that you act on, you commit to, and you actually get finished. Yeah, exactly. Great point, Peter. So there's at least three things that I've seen you put out into the world that are creative, whether it's the illustrations on mindfulness, and I encourage people to go look at those. We'll put them in the show notes, your book, and your stand-up comedy. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: When did you realize in life that you had this creative aspect to you?
1: Good question. I'll go back to uh, elementary school and a uh, creative writing assignment. And I remember my work was used as the example. The teacher took my work and used it as an example of how to do a good job. And, And it was a silly little piece, you know, of writing. And then the next class, another kid copied the same way. And she scolded him. And I felt really bad for him, because he'd just been told, like, this is a good way to do it. And then he did that. And she's like, no, you can't copy. It. So then I, that, I think at maybe age nine, I realized, oh, okay, I, I've got ideas that the movie are neat. And then it happened in grade 10, a piece of writing I did won a, got nominated in like a BC Youth Writing Awards book, something like that, right? So I had a little confirmation there that people thought my ideas were neat. But I was just too lazy and I like wouldn't stick with it. I then got into public speaking at 18, 19 and Toastmasters. And when I would give speeches, I realized that people were enjoying them more than I expected them to because there was just something like odd and maybe a little creative and who knows in them, you know, they were funny or, or stupid or, but I really loved that. So I would lose time planning speeches and whether they were like, the prepared ones, or even the impromptu ones, I would get such a buzz from doing that. So I was involved in public speaking off and on from age 18
0: to now in Toastmasters in
1: Vancouver and Korea. So that was an outlet for
0: creativity. So how many years would you say you did Toastmasters in
1: total? Let's see here. Two full-time in Vancouver. Uh, Maybe you could add two or three in Korea. So to like... Five years, and then a little bit of intern, call it like a solid few, and then part time also for. And then teaching for fifteen years. The teaching for fifteen years has been an outlet to speak to, to a group. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and one thing for the listeners. One thing I've told Peter in the past when we've talked about things you admire in each other. I've told Peter he's one of the more articulate people I've ever met. And so things are starting to make sense. Uh Uh-huh. Peter, one thing I want for listeners of The Pursuit of Learning who are parents is to take some of the nuggets from this and understand how can I encourage these traits or behaviors in my children. So for example, creativity. Are there things that you remember your mother and father doing that also allowed this creative energy to flourish in you? No, it's
1: probably my quickest answer. Um, My parents did not have creative practices uh, at all. And my father was a banker. My mom was a law librarian. And so there was um, a lot of in- incredible, beautiful traits I got from them. But they didn't have creative a creative practice for me to follow. So I think my quick answer is that there's no, there doesn't need to be a connection between what's, what the parent's doing and what the child is doing. And uh, as far as how to bring out creativity in a child, the answer that feels really true to me right now is make sure they know that there's no wrong way to be creative and that it doesn't have to look a certain way. It doesn't have to be a certain thing. The important thing, the absolute most important thing is that they wanted to make it when they made it and that they kind of enjoyed making it. And so it's just simply that act of creating. That's the thing that can be incentivized and, and, and motivated and encouraged, not the how beautiful the thing did you make?
0: Don't focus on the result. Yeah. Focus on the process. Son, daughter loved watching the look in your eyes while you were creating. Yeah. Love watching how good it seemed you enjoyed doing that. Not this is good or this is bad. Correct. Because
1: the creation could end up, oh, getting a child attention or accolades, or and you, and you could get you could win a contest. There's all kinds of ways it could play out. People could not care about about it, and that's not the point at this stage. the The, the point is learning that you're capable of making something, like out of principle. Like you're capable of making anything from your own self. <laughs> that's that's the quality that I think. I hope that I can have my whole life, that, that I can create something myself. And like, that's something that can be, just that thought can be a rescue line to anybody at any point in their life, down in the dark pit, just the one thought of like, I can make something.
0: Regardless of the outcome, the yeah, process exactly. of doing it. And hey, you created a story, you created a painting, you created
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the celebration.
0: Something that jumped out with what you said there for me. They could win an award. It could get liked. When you and I were young, we didn't have technology. We didn't have our art. We didn't have our life on social media. We didn't have someone pressing a like button or not pressing a like button. Mm -hmm. How do you think social media, the desire to be liked, learning that people like certain things and not others. How is that influencing the generations that are coming behind us? I don't know, but I think that it acts as a multiplier for
1: whatever a youth would be experiencing organically. So, you know, I can think of two extreme examples, the jock and the nerd, right? So the jock, Walks through the halls, everyone loves him, he's got the hot girl, he's he's like high fives all around. On social media, he's getting the same feedback. So it's like going to multiply whatever there was of that, this feedback from the environment, positive, praise, whatever. Is that a good thing? I don't know. It's like, it's up to that individual, like, does that become their neurosis? Does that become... the the attention they need to be healthy or they are already healthy. And then that's just happening.
0: Yeah. Does that become their echo chamber? So they put up a a drawing or a painting or a poem and it doesn't get liked. Do they put it up again? Or do they say, Oh shit, my friends only, only virtually have five me when I'm flexing and lifting weights. I better go flex and lift some weights. Yeah,
1: so it's like, is it a reinforcement of an ego that's that's helpful? Maybe it's maybe it's helpful. Maybe it's healthy, but maybe it's maybe it's not. And then I also think on the other end, you know, the kid that may suffer from getting pushed in the locker in high school or whatever it may be, getting bullied. Now he's got this multiplier thing. He's getting bullied day. online. Yeah, and and God, my my hope is that kids have somewhere else to go. to to know what's real and that they can maintain the separation.
0: And so fast forward to someday Peter Beresford has a 13, 14 year old daughter or son. Are you trying to encourage them to stay off social media until they can develop that inner calibration tool, that place of refuge or calmness that will allow them to process the information in a way where they're not positively or negatively attached to the outcome?
1: I think that there's a definite argument to be made to keep kids off social media, um, mainly for the short term uh, impulsive wiring that it, it creates, like it, you know, they incentivize people to click and, and, and like and, and reward them, and so there's a really, a really, a rewiring issue that's very real. Um, not to mention all the ego-related stuff that we just talked about. But I also think there's a case to be made for kids knowing what's out there and not remaining luddites, and, and knowing that this is what this is. These are the pros and cons of it. You can, just like watching TV. I felt bad for the kids that weren't allowed to watch TV. I felt oh, like... Were, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of this a similar conversation. It's like, well, why would you want to... Like, would you want to do that to your kid or not? Now, social media is a worse evil than TV. And, and we've seen the, the documentaries lately, the social dilemma. And like, we know why it's the worst evil. So I think we have to be careful even talking about it. It's like, it gets compared to smoking. You know, they say, oh, 50 years ago, people didn't think smoking was a problem. And now we're like, I don't smoke. That's the joke that gets made about social media now. I think if I had to make the choice for a 13-year-old, 14-year-old daughter, I'd say you get 30 minutes a day on there, an hour a day, whatever it is. But don't constantly have it buzzing you all day, distracting you every minute.
0: Shut off notifications, have time limits, and have conversations around social media with them, the real world versus social media. A simple example that may resonate on that front is I talk to my kids about money and they'll often look at someone and say, Timmy's rich, you know, as an example. And I say, well, why do you think Timmy's rich? And they'll say, well, his mom drives this car or dad drives that car or he has this phone. Right. And so one of the concepts I'm trying to teach them about is debt. His net worth is you never actually know if Timmy's rich or if Timmy's parents are in a lot of debt.
1: Yeah. Is Timmy rich or is Timmy's dad losing sleep at night?
0: Exactly, yeah. and, and social media is the same. I, you know, I'm talking with the boys on a run, and I say, no one posts the shit part of their life onto their Instagram feed. Yeah, I don't right. post when I'm having a fight with you because you don't want to go to bed onto my Instagram feed. We're posting when we're hugging and going for a run together, and it looks great, yeah, that's right. but life's not always great. That's right.
1: Yeah. The favorite line I have about that is on social media, we're comparing other people's exteriors to our interiors.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And that's not reasonable. That is only going to lead people to a path of depression and suffering. Yeah. It's, it's inevitable.
1: It's physics.
0: (laughs) Excellent. On a pivot. Can you think of something you will do as a parent to encourage the children to be creative?
1: It would happen from a very young age. I think that the approach that any parent takes has to be very—you have to be very sensitive and delicate about it, because anything you push a child to do, it could have the opposite effect. You know, and, and so I'm aware of that odd tension. You know, like. If you want something so bad for your kid, then that's the thing they won't do or they'll feel judged for not doing that. Something like that, right? So I'll start by saying, that even though I would want them to be creative, I wouldn't want to push them to be creative because that just feels gross, you know? But as far as encouraging them, I would say anytime I saw them make something or do something expressive, could be anything. Could be dance, could be drawing, could be sculpting, could be singing. It could be anything. Anything creative, right? Um, I would acknowledge it positively. And I would would say, that's really cool that you did that, that you tried that. And that there's something really cool that you even tried it. And I want you to know that, that. That's very cool. And that's very fun. And that makes me happy. Actually. I think that's where I'd come from. And then... It'd be like, praise the qualities I want to see more of, I guess, you know, in a phrase. But shit, I mean, I was put in piano class, forced in piano class. I can't play the piano. I don't like the piano. Like, I was put in things that were, quote unquote, supposed to be creative. And then I wasn't creative in those things. Because you were
0: forced to do them. You were pushed.
1: I was forced to do them. And, and I didn't understand why I was doing it. <laughs> I was pushed to do them. And creativity is such a natural extension of what's really happening in us. And, and to be to sit down at a piano for an hour with Mrs. Nicholson from four thirty to five thirty because that's when my parents could get home to pick me up or something. I was like, "What is this scale? What am I even doing with my fingers? I feel so bad for this. Why one. am I here? Why am I here?" And and I didn't do any of the practicing. Like I I get pulled out. During like family dinners and stuff, my mom would cart me out and say, "Peter, play this song." Like, Jesus, are you kidding me? And I would play some dorky song, and I just I hated it. And what a shame. I, that's all. And I think that's just my example of you. You can't like turn on the creativity by booking a kid into something unless they really want to do that. Unless they ask unless you to do it. Unless they ask. Unless they you, say, "Hey, Dad,
0: I want to play guitar." Hey, right. Mom, can I be in piano? Sure. Let's encourage what you love. Yeah. Interesting. Lately, I I feel like we've been having this same conversation together and with, with a few other people when we talk about choice. So, for example, when I say I should work out more, I'm almost forcing myself to want to work out. And I have the same reaction to that as I do to my parent, when I'm a kid saying, you have to do piano versus I choose to work out. Yeah. You're saying, let the, let your children choose and then encourage the choices that will lead to long term success in their lives. Exactly. And, and it's that where
1: is the zero to one coming from? Is the zero to one coming from inside them or or from outside? And and I think the answer to that will decide how long you're gonna to want to do it.
0: <laughs> Last question on creativity. Do you have any creative or comedic role models or mentors that have influenced what you do? I'm thinking of your stand-up comedy. What influenced the way you delivered your comedy?
1: I think Seinfeld. I think that he was the stand up comedy role model I had when I was 18, 20, 19, 20. And when I started doing public speaking, then people would say, Oh, you, you have a pacing, you have a pause. It's reminding me of Seinfeld. So I think I, I internalized that slow, dry, lean kind of delivery, right? Where there's so much... I think I noticed when I was watching comedy there's so much happening when there's nothing being said. And that the the jokes are just the words. It's everything around the words that makes them funny. I mean, you could deliver the same list of jokes Seinfeld read and nobody would laugh for a second. That's right. It's it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Yes. And so it's the inflections, it's the pause, it's I love that embracing the, oh, like he's a real entertainer. Like he has respect for the audience. And what that meant in that era was that you chose what you were going to say because people had paid money to show up somewhere. You weren't just going to say whatever came to mind because why would you, these people paid to see a performance. Like why? They would pay to see just riff and think random thoughts. So
0: I, I liked that.
1: Now, of course, there's many ways to do performance and comedy, and I respect all of
0: them. Have you watched much of Comedians in Cars? Yeah. And what you said right there absolutely resonated. Last night while I was at basketball with my son, you're not allowed to in anymore. So you sit in the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I was watching a Netflix video. <laughs> and I was watching Kevin Hart with Jerry Seinfeld. And they have completely opposite styles. Laid bare, simple, calm delivery. Whereas, as Jerry said to Kevin, I've never seen someone get into a bit faster than you. Mm. And Kevin said, yeah, like I get into my bit before I even get on the stage. Like, when the fire's coming up and I'm walking out through the flames, that's part of the bit. And, you know, Jerry pointed out you probably don't need the flames and takes away from the show. (laughs) But then gave him an an observation that might help with the show. And for each of them, totally different delivery. My two favorite comics.
1: No way. And so Seinfeld actually had a suggestion on
0: yeah, and he waved his hand in the air like he was giving that suggestion to oh, Kevin. Wow. And Kevin said, You don't need to do the wave like you're giving that to me. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was it was really well done and Kevin said it was one of his two favorite conversations in his life. The first favorite being mm. when his dad told him why he had to do drugs. But I'll, oh, I'll leave it for you to watch that episode. I think you'll really enjoy up. it. Switching topics. Korea. Korea. Teaching. Mm-hmm. When you first went to Korea to teach English as a second language, how long did you plan on going for? Seven years. You planned originally, yeah, I'm no, going I, for seven years. I
1: was the only person who showed up and said, I'm going to stay here seven years. Literally, I never heard anyone else answer that way. And... It was not my first time in the country. So I knew what I was getting into. So that helped me decide why I was going there and why seven years was going to be the amount. I would spent four months there a couple of years earlier and realized, oh, this is the place I want to come back to. I want to go seal off my education, upgrade a little bit so I can come back and get the jobs I want. I know the employment landscape. I know the the do's and don'ts. I know where you want to work. And I can come back and kill it. And I'm like, I'm going to say seven years because it'll take that long for me to hit my savings and investment goals.
0: So, there was a very specific seven-year plan to hit certain saving and investing goals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I
1: worked in a lot of traveling and trips into that seven years and then didn't hit those goals.
0: Because of, because you spent the money on the travel. I was having too much fun. And too much and, fun.
1: Yeah. Love it. And, and I kept, you so. know, just justifying, justifying. But anyway.
0: So what are some of your more memorable moments from living in Korea?
1: Oh man, memorable moments in Korea. There's just too many. There's way too many. Um, And I definitely will make these all safe for work. My most memorable moments in Korea were beautiful Sunday afternoons in Seoul, walking through Shopping districts, outdoor shopping districts that are just beautifully set up. It might as well look like a music video with fall leaves, you know, falling from the trees under the ground and, and street food and maybe an afternoon drink with some really good friends and the mountains in the background. I think that some of the funnest memories in Seoul were about eating with people and eating street food with people, eating in groups, sharing soup, sharing sojus, you know, you pour each other's soju, talking about Korea, which is one of the favorite topics of foreigners in Korea, is to talk about how little they understand Korea. And And I think one thing that kept me there so long was my mind kept getting blown. And so things would keep surprising me, like... I would see the way a bus driver talked to a customer and I, I think, did you just say that? Like, is he talking that way to that guy? Like, he's, he's being that ag- aggressive to this customer right now or to this bus rider. You know, is that normal? It's just all these cues that I would ha- have normally for how people would communicate. They're just out the window there. And so there's just this fascination with that.
0: So the communication style in a lot of ways, if you were, it sounds like if you were in Canada, you would find super aggressive, maybe rude?
1: Huh. Like,
0: the police would be called or something. Like,
1: yeah, super aggressive, super rude. I mean, and I'm not painting Koreans as rude people. They're the Italians of Asia. They're the most vocally expressive people in Asia. They, they love to hug and push, and they're, like, physical. So it's, it's not just about the communication, though. No. It's about food, discovering new kinds of food. Um whole new neighborhoods. Uh but I, I think yeah, a lot of the surprises were in like the human dynamics. And that maybe appealed to me more than the average person, because that's just a topic that I, I like.
0: I've noticed that. You you are very observational. Mm-hmm. You're one of the more empathetic people I've ever seen and, and you generally have a good ability to put yourself in other people's shoes. Mm-hmm which would lend itself, I'm assuming, to enjoying watching people and saying, what if that was me or if I was in those shoes or if I was that person? Completely.
1: And, and I, I know that it was one of my dad's favorite pastimes, just watching people, figuring out what, what they're up to, laughing. And, and also as a teacher, empathy is important because you've got students that are sometimes extremely scared. And they're paying money to be there.
0: And you have to know like how, how to treat people to, to make it the best possible experience. Something just came back to me when you mentioned your students and the social media conversation we had earlier. Can you try to describe for our listeners the exercise you started using earlier in covid as it related to your students and what you had them do at the start of the class with their cell phone during the Zoom classes. Yeah.
1: So this is that, the, the thing I, I mentioned to you once. Yeah. So I, I realized that teaching on Zoom, I'm just one more screen in their life. And I don't want to be competing with all the other screens on their desk. So the, the number one offender is the cell phone. So yeah, I would ask them, Where's your phone? And they'd say, Oh, it's down here. And I say, pick it up, show it to me. (laughs) Now put it in your hand. And now I want you to reach your hand out to the right, uh, as far as you can. And now I want a couple feet. Now I want you to lean another foot over. And now I want you to put your phone down on the floor or wherever that is. I don't care. Drop the phone in the carpet and now come back to center. So what that meant is their phone is literally physically out of reach. And so, I told them that act is gonna that one act is gonna get you so much more value out of this class because you've now committed to giving me your attention and if I have your attention we can do something cool.
0: If I don't have your
1: attention on the basic level then we're wasting our time. So
0: yeah, yeah. I thought that was genius, and that way through the rest of the class as well. If you saw someone leaning two feet to the right, you would know the odds of <laughs> reaching a, for their cell phone. Yeah. Another great adventure you talked about with Asia as well was a 14-month backpacking trip. Mm -hmm. You started the trip with Mm $5,000. You ended the trip with Mm $5,000. So you backpacked through Asia for 14 months with effectively zero spending. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. I was 22.
1: 22. I had an invitation from a friend to go backpacking in Southeast Asia. I met him in London. I actually borrowed $5,000 to do do the trip. I didn't even have $5,000. Borrowed $5,000 to do the trip. Even better. Yeah. And met him in London for a week. And all I knew is we were flying to Kathmandu, to Nepal. And I'd never been to Europe, never been to Asia. And that first week in... Kathmandu completely floored me, blew my mind in every way. And then I spent the next 10 months really backpacking. That means staying in the cheapest possible places, buying the cheapest possible food, trying to stretch your dollar as far as you possibly can. That included a stint working in a call center in Bangkok, even for six weeks in a really strange, crazy job. And my only plan was I'm going to, when I run out of money, I'm going to, go to Australia and pick fruit because I have a holiday working visa and that'll be the next leg of the adventure. When I got to 10 months, I started calling farms in Darwin and or other other places in Australia. And and they told me, you know, come on down. And then I also had an invitation to go teach in Korea at at an English camp from one of my most respected friends who I really trusted. And so she said, yeah, job's great okay it's, it's incredible <laughs> right you're going to be staying based in a hotel 10 days of work so you're going to pay you like 2500 in cash at the end of it I mean it just sounded like the softest possible landing to a country
0: so well, I, and so you went for I went like to four months, months. Which is the four months you referenced earlier that led to your future seven years? That's exactly it. Okay. Yeah. Because I kept getting
1: these little jobs for four months and then I earned the five grand and came back and was able to pay back the person who lent
0: it to me. (laughs) Love it, Peter. Peter, what is something that you struggle with on a daily basis? That's a good
1: question. And I want to be careful with the language that I use on this because I'm getting more aware of the importance of languaging. I like that word, languaging, Great. and and that I don't want to choose to use the word struggle. Right? Uh, I understand the spirit of the question, but the most important thing that maybe I'm, I'm challenge I challenge myself to do on a daily basis is direct my attention intentionally. And I find that when I can take that horse by the ropes and get on it and stay on it, my quality of life is just so much higher. So what that means is what do I do for the first 15 minutes when I wake up? I'm having a tea, I'm cleaning my home with tidying, with an intention. You know, what am I doing for the next 30 minutes? Am I showering? Am I doing the light like movement, mobility, work workout, stretch? But it's keeping my attention on the thing. That I've chosen. That is the most important thing, like, for my quality of life, I find. And being aware of, like, I can't be militant with it. I don't want to be super militant. I want to be kind with myself. So, like, I do need breaks. I do need to give my attention breaks in the day. And I want to allow for that fun and, and softness in my day. And, but there's slippery slopes with habits, like, YouTube you know, getting on a train of YouTube videos, like you said, and like, it's almost the, what's the word, the seductress. What is the seductress in your day? So it's like, the seductress looks good. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna watch an educational video on YouTube, I'm gonna learn something about politics or some intellectual sphere or something. And then what does that degenerate into? (laughs) Exactly, okay, (laughs) okay. Okay.
0: Now we're on this social media too, you know. So by being deliberate, By being intentional and by being present, you're able to avoid some of those seductions a little better, which may tie into your comment early in the episode when you said you try to go no more than 24 hours without getting a meditation in because that brings you back. Yeah, it's really that basic question. Do you know what you're doing as you're doing it? And are you choosing to do it? Or did you let it choose you? Yeah. I'll tell you a line I heard from a recent workshop I did that blew me away. The little boy in you was hooked. The man in you went along for the ride. Hmm. So in other words, you actually had no choice. Mm -hmm. Your conditioning throughout life led you down that path. And what you're trying to do with the meditation, with the intention... Mm-hmm. with the deliberation is to choose
1: yeah that's right it's to reclaim uh sovereignty uh, over what is happening in your day and interrupt that long-term chain reaction that got triggered like you said as a adolescent as a hook and then you got triggered and then you just kept playing out this reaction right and so yeah. interrupting that hopping off that train what a beautiful thing right and yeah i love that analogy
0: That's beautiful. And I think it may lead into, because I always like to look at things two sides of a coin. So if there's one thing that is a challenge daily, in this case, we talked about the seductress. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, what is something that you find easy to do that the average person is very challenged by or struggles with?
1: Hmm, That's a good question. I don't know how much other people struggle with things, so it's tough for me to say, you know. But I think relating to people, maybe one of them. I think keeping a positive rapport with my students, maybe one of them, that may come naturally. I think maintaining practices like exercise and meditation, like those two things specifically, I, I find they're they're a bit of a What's that word? Deal breaker. Or like, there's no choice in the matter. I'm like, I have to, they became
0: musts. I think that that's my best guess. It makes sense based on the things we've been talking about throughout the day. So I want to dive deeply to be remiss if we didn't into the Trump guide to spirituality, which is a book you've recently published. You went through an Indiegogo campaign Mm and were successful, mm-hmm. signed a number of books, shipped them out, and now you're in the process of selling in some stores, mm-hmm. selling on Amazon, mm-hmm. and learning all of the process of doing that. Mm-hmm. Can you describe to the listeners what the book's about?
1: Sure, I'd be very happy to, and thank you for introducing it like that.
0: What is the book about? Well,
1: it Is not a regular book, so by that, I mean you don't sit and read hundreds of pages of text, so it's not a traditional book. I didn't write a book. I created something that's very fun to look at, very fun to hold. And you can read it, it's it's only 60 pages, you can read it in 10-15 minutes. It is about the length of time someone can even keep their attention span as they're sitting in your living room waiting for you to make tea, right? So it's it's a coffee table book that, or a bathroom reader or a a den book or like an office waiting room book that you can read in the amount of time you have, right? So that was the idea. And it's made for the Instagram generation, so it's a square, right? Every page is is one image and... One quote, But the left and right pages interact with each other. So on the left, you have a Trump, a Trumpism, you could call it. So this is something significant, absurd, weird, crazy, unbelievable that Trump has said since the 1980s. And then on the right, you have a quote from a religion or a spiritual root. So it's got all the major world religions and, and some authors and spiritual notes. And so there's a contrast or a juxtaposition. Those are the the key words to explain what's happening. So on on the left, you laugh and you're in shock. And on the right, you read something insightful. And the fun is in figuring out what's the interaction between the right page and the left page. So some of them are just a criticism of Trump. You know, that's sort of the low-hanging fruit. Some of them are a response. Those can be more interesting. And then some of them are even... They can work two ways or three ways. They're the translation of some accidental wisdom in in what he said. So, like Trump has Buddha nature on a level, to a degree. And that's where there's a lot of fun, because it's very tongue-in-cheek, yet it's asking some important questions at the same time. It's up to the reader to decide what each two pages are doing. People who read it say that it makes them laugh, makes them think, and I've been really happy with it.
0: Are you okay with me sharing one for the listeners? Oh, I love it. Okay. Okay. So, on the left page, we have an image of President Trump. And it's all silhouettes. I think that's very important. Yes, all silhouettes, and silhouettes. And They're very
1: minimal silhouettes.
0: Great illustrations, silhouettes. In this case, it's of President Trump and the Buddha on the right. And the Buddha's quote is, Radiate boundless love towards the entire world. And on the Donald, President Trump page, sorry, it says... Happy hashtag Sanco de Mayo. The best taco bowls are made in Trump Tower Grill. I love Hispanics. <laughs> so... Yeah. Just a little bit of a juxtaposition between love the entire world and use Sanco de Mayo to sell the taco bowls in your hotel while you're the president of the United States of America. Right.
1: And and how how on one level how awful is that? Another level, how bad is it that you're you're grouping in this entire cultural group to some food item that like may not even really be part of their cuisine or not?
0: Right? Like a girl sows. <laughs> Uh, Chicken is really Chinese food. Exactly. And and also, looking at what he said and saying,
1: is there anything wrong with this? Like he's celebrating one of his favorite things.
0: And there's an innocence. There's always a different way to look at it, a different lens, a different angle, which is what I love about it. And Peter, so what was the aha moment when you decided to create the Trump Guide to Spirituality? I was laying in
1: bed and I thought of the Trump Guide to Buddhism. The The, the tagline just came in my head and it cracked me up. And I don't know why. I think I'd been over consuming like Trump media, over watching so much news when, around his election time. And also, I was meditating and reading Buddhist books. And so, there's sort of two worlds and they just, kind of collided and exploded in my brain and I wrote it down and it it made me laugh just they're so far apart because there, there couldn't be two things further apart in, in the public mind than Trump and Buddhism right And I, I love her that. yeah 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 I just it's just so absurd and I and then I just I left it and then as I do many ideas and then a week or two later I thought of it again and I thought, oh what is that just something to that and I started, it's like what's here? Why is this fascinating to me? And I started drawing a little bit. Like what? What? What does this even mean? And, and I draw. I drew Trump and Buddha, and I, then I realized I can't draw. <laughs> and so I left it. And then it was sort of a process like that. So every week or two, I would go. I'd feel drawn to look at this scrap piece of paper again and, and say, "What's there? What's funny?" And then I realized what was funny was. My parents had a calendar of Trumpisms, every day you pull a page, and then so they were really cracking me up. And then I thought, well, what if we put something wise over here, and I made one of them. And then it, I really enjoyed the little exercise of making one of them. And then I started to imagine what the art could look like, and then thought of a couple more. And then realized there was a lot more opportunities if I opened it up to all the different religions. So it changed from the Trump Guide to Buddhism to the Trump Guide to Spirituality. That's right. And I thought, oh, there's so much more material here to work with. So I then went down a serious research route where I have like spreadsheets and spreadsheets of Trump quotes from like just hundreds, thousands I read through. And then also spreadsheets full of all these religious and spiritual quotes. And so I went and chose all my favorite ones. And then I went through this process of trying to line them up and see like which ones play with
0: each other, which ones work good together. That's beautiful, Peter. Yeah. The word "kofefe" mm. even made it into the book. Oh, yeah. And does anyone yet actually know what that word means? Only him. Only him. And,
1: and, and I think, so the answer is no, but I think the answer that everybody accepted was he fell asleep while I was sending a message. And which happens when you send 130 tweets in a day, it's going to happen. And, and you're up late. And it was like a late night text. Too. It was a late night tweet. Yeah. It was in the middle of the night. Yeah. So I have the times in on these. Pages yeah. The yeah. Party. The times. step. Yeah. That's right. Cause that's part of the comedy of it. And then he woke
0: up and he said,
1: everyone's dying to know what it means. You'll never find out. But
0: I, I think we can. Yeah, he deleted it six hours later, though he said it was deliberate. It was intentional. But I'm going to delete it. (laughs) This is such a transparent (laughs) (laughs) liar. So Peter, as you've gone through this exercise, whether it's Indiegogo, whether it's Amazon Fulfillment, what are some of the greatest lessons that you've learned?
1: Wow, I love that question. I'm really trying to dig into that right now because the answer to that is going to be the highest leverage point for my next project. That's right. So I did the project to learn all the skills that came along with learning. I didn't do it to sell a number of books. Right? I did it to sell 10 books to strangers online. And I knew if I did that, I'd learn a whole bunch. So there's major areas in making a book. And and three of them are uh, like creation, like the publishing of it. The second is the marketing of it. The third is a distribution
0: of it. Creation, marketing, distribution. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You could also call
1: it production, marketing, distribution. And so each of them has their host of, of lessons, right? Mm-hmm. That are all really important, actually. I think the most important one to answer your question is that will guide me going forward is how do you validate an idea for the lowest possible investment before you invest your time and energy into it. And I love what I created in this Trump Guide to Spirituality. The major obstacle I had was I was not permitted to advertise the book on any of the major marketing platforms or books. Amazon is one and Facebook, Instagram, uh, Google. Like so, where do you where do you advertise things? Well, the the most effective advertising or the most measurable is like Facebook, Instagram, Google, and I couldn't do that at all. And so I learned that I'd made something that I wasn't allowed to market. And is that
0: because he was still the president, or because the election was happening?
1: Both. 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 So so Facebook and Google and Amazon like they have specific policies saying you cannot. And they're good policies. You cannot run advertising that relates to a specific person in office or who's running for office.
0: That makes sense. Unless you have a PAC, could we have created a Trump Guide to Spirituality PAC and advertise it through that? What's a PAC? I don't know the exact acronym, but those are the vehicles that are created to do the advertising during a campaign campaign. So, for example, you see a campaign and it says brought to you by the dot, 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 not Donald Trump or not the Republican Party. It's effectively a vehicle that's done a lot of fundraising on the outside, which is generally seen as a means to get around conventional financing rules.
1: Where are these ads that you're referring to? Are these on the TV? Generally television. Yeah. And there's a very key difference.
0: So television allows those ads. Yeah, you can run those ads on TV. Oh, that's probably why we don't really see those types of advertisements on Facebook. There you go. And why not?
1: These laws are a reaction to the 2016 election meddling from Russian trolls, allegedly. Alleged Russian trolls. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that Facebook realized, well, this is a serious breach. We need to clamp down on this. So... I made something that I wasn't allowed to market in the most like, like for self publishers Social media is important, right? If you're established an established author with an established publishing company and have access to an interview on CNN or the Joe Rogan podcast or whatever, great. But for a first-time self-publisher, like social media is a very important thing, place to be able to promote. And I made my book such the cover such that it was bait, so that when people saw it it would grab their attention and they'd say, what is that? That is ridiculous. It's bright red, white. There's an image of Donald Trump meditating. And, and it, so it was very effective at getting attention. Yeah, I love the cover. The cover is really well done. And literally, like, I just haven't been able to advertise it. And, and so I'm still appealing now that the inauguration's done. I'm still appealing with Amazon and Facebook saying, can I now? Can I now?
0: Which is what I was wondering is now that we're out, you have four years before he runs again in 2024, where you're allowed to potentially advertise this. And yeah, I literally
1: emailed Amazon last night saying, "Hey guys," with screenshots of them promising me. I just think everything's changed since Capital, the Capital Riot.
0: Yeah, so it's gonna take a little bit before they before they let something like this out. Yeah, for, for so good they, reason. So you no know? one gets
1: incited for good reason. You know, so I I yeah. get it, and I I don't like it. So it doesn't help me, but I get it. Now, for the next project, I wanna make sure that I can market something before I create that something. That makes sense. Because for the next one, I'm gonna have more of a goal of can I sell a thousand of these? Not can I sell 10.
0: Yeah, now that I know how to do
1: it, I wanna make some money at it. Yeah, maybe make money, but maybe like even, I definitely wanna make money. I wanna make money in anything I do, but still being patient with that. Yes. Right? And, and understanding that it's the process that's the important thing, learning the key lessons of the process. So if the next project is sell a hundred to strangers, I don't know, or 500 or a thousand, like keep it modest, keep it doable and validate the idea first. So that's what I'm doing right now. I had some ridiculous ideas. I'm validating them. I'm running ads for, it's just like a book cover book. Doesn't
0: exist. So you're almost doing a B testing with different concepts to simply see would people want to buy this if I put it out. And if you get good feedback on the marketing, then you'll produce it. Yeah. So you don't have to do production, marketing, distribution in that order. Obviously distribution always has to be number three, but you're doing number two before number one in this case. Exactly, I love love this. So so it's uh, use
1: marketing to validate a concept. Verify that there's demand there. If possible, have a pre order system, right? On a Kindle version, let's say. And then, if there is a demand, create the book. And my idea for creating the book this is the laborious part, quote unquote, like the hard part of writing is like, well, you can't rush writing a book. This is where I'm going to get, I'm trying to get really creative with like, how do I find content and create something worth reading? in the shortest amount of time. And so I'm looking at a number of ideas for that. So like, I mean, my book is a great example of it's like DJing, right? I didn't write the Trump tweets. I didn't write the, the spiritual quotes. I just found them, presented them in such a way that was, was interesting. So
0: that's how I'm looking at the creation of this stuff too. I'm like, have you ever heard of the book? I believe it's called man's guide to everything you need to know about women. No, and it's written by a, 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 doctor and i put that in quotation marks okay. and then when you open the book it's three four hundred pages and they're entirely blank <laughs> and apparently the book is sold millions of copies
1: honestly what there, the greatest this, yeah, this ever. is such a great concept and there's a, an entire industry of i think they call them no content books exactly and so you can take any pop star you could take any famous philosopher put them on front of the front of a book. You could call it the Aristotle journal, right? With a bunch of blank lines or lines, blank blank pages, you know? And and so that would be the most minimal example of not having to write, create the inside. People still buy. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the question is like, well, why are you making, it? you know? I mean, in that case, that's a hilarious product. It's going to get laughs. It's a laugh, right? It's a gag gift. And so this creator decided oh, I'm going to make a gag gift I'm going to make some sales it sounds like an evergreen book which means it'll keep selling
0: I think yeah. every few years they actually put out you know the 15th year 15 edition updated that, that 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 anniversary edition and you open it up and it's the same blank pages so I, was, I saw it earlier uh, for Christmas and I almost bought it it was quite interesting yeah the where can our listeners find your book?
1: They can find the book in two places. The first is the book's website, which is Trump Guide to And if they go there, they're going to see some page samples and some funny videos I made. They can also get the book on Amazon. So if you just search the title of the book, Trump Guide to Spirituality on amazon.co.com, yeah, you'll find it
0: on there. And for those who are listening, I hope it's not just my mom, maybe Peter's mom. There is an excellent video of a Trump impersonator reading some of the book and talking about how much he loves the book. So definitely worth a viewing. Peter, my last question for you, and I think you've hinted at this throughout our conversation. When you are at your absolute best, what habits, routines, practices are you following regularly? It's very
1: easy to answer that. Yeah, It is regular sleep that yeah, six to eight hours of regular sleep. It is drinking a lot of water, it is meditation daily. It is exercise daily, and the exercise doesn't have to be hard, it can be moderate. I really notice that the effect of even moderate exercise. And, that, and naps, naps are so huge. So often when we reach for a coffee or a drink or a smoke or whatever bad habit, we're tired. And a great solution for that is naps.
0: So, yeah, I think those basics. Oh, and you're eating natural food reasonably well. Yeah. Skipping the Big Macs. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want the listeners to know?
1: That's a good question. I, I think that. I would like to remind the listeners of the theme of this podcast, which is Clint's podcast about learning, really, and that his, your commitment to learning, interest in learning, lifelong learning, and what a beautiful thing that is. And that when we look at other people and ask what can we learn from them and realize that every other person can teach us something, it's a really cool way to live and it's a really cool way to build relationships and it's a cool way to be in conversation uh, no matter who they are, eight year old Hungarian kids, 80 year old Chinese lady. They can, every single one of them can teach us something. So yeah, I just want to say that this podcast and your effort with it is a great reminder for me of that. And that I think it's really cool that you're doing this.
0: Thank you very much, Peter. And I will expand on that because you nailed fundamentally the entire purpose of the podcast. And that's the realization I've had through life that every single person you meet knows things that you don't. And so when you see the cover art for the podcast, it's a cartoon illustration of me on an adventure to learn And ultimately, there's an image of someone holding, well, me, holding a large golden nugget. Mm -hmm. And that golden nugget is what you can get if you dig in to a conversation with those people and you try to find some of those things that you don't know that can help you to grow personally personally. Professionally and financially Find those nuggets of wisdom And in my show notes In an intro to this show I'll highlight some of the Nuggets that we got From Peter today Or that I got from Peter today And that I found Really enjoyable For our listeners, Peter Where can they find you If they want to learn more About your future adventures? Hmm I suppose they could find me on
1: my Instagram page, which is petering up, all one word. And they could also find me on Facebook. But I don't think that you can message me on Facebook unless you know me. So I think uh, Instagram is probably the best way. Yeah, Um, petering up. The book, Trump Guide to Spirituality, also has an Instagram account and you can message me on there. And that's a totally open account, too. So that might be easier.
0: And so the next step that's going to take a little more time and by the time we get to project three or four, it'll Mm -hmm. no longer be individual websites for each project, but we'll have, we'll have a Peter website with all of your
1: work. I literally just bought the domain peterbearsford.ca. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't get .com, but I've I've have peterbearsford.ca and there's nothing there. And
0: that is will be developed for that That reason. reason. Yeah. Perfect. Because that is the future that I see for you, brother. Thank you for coming out today. This was such an enjoyable conversation, my friend. Thanks, Clint. You too. I loved it. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list until next time your host in learning clint murphy